This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we are talking about racial disparity in higher education. My guest is Dr. Jeff Stroll, the Director of Research at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Dr. Stroll is the co-author of the recently released study, Separate and Unequal, How Higher Education Reinforces the Intergenerational Reproduction of White Racial Privilege. Hi, Jeff. Thank you so much for being on Know It All today. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me. Well, this report is groundbreaking in many ways. Its focus on racial inequity in higher education is unique. There is much focus these days on racial inequity at the K-12 level. Also, your findings with respect to racial inequity and white privilege are really damning for where we are as a nation. Will you start first by explaining what the good news, bad news is that you found? Well, our study covers uh, growth in enrollment between 1995 in 2009 and does so by levels of selectivity and by we use the barren school on sort of the I think we've lost Dr. Stroll for just a moment um, but if you have not yet checked out the report separate and unequal a look at racial disparity at the higher education level. You can access a copy of the report at http um, cew.georgetown.edu. Again, that's cew.georgetown.edu. We'll try to get Dr. Stroll back here so that we can hear more about the report. Jeff, are you with us? Yes, I am. Don't know what happened there. Sorry about that. Um, Anyways... the uh, good news, bad news part of the story. Um, between 95 and 2009, we've seen enormous gains in access to post-secondary education among minority groups. We've had a growth for Hispanics around 107% enrollment growth, and among African Americans, I think it's 73 or 4, while white growth in enrollments has only been about 15%. So Clearly, we've seen huge gains in access, and this isn't just a starting from a small base phenomenon in the amount of growth. What we have today is in the the, the change in enrollment that uh, uh, Hispanics and African Americans are almost at the same level of new of the new enrollments as are whites. They're all around 200,000 of that gain. So, um, the, the in access terms, things are becoming on equal footing. But as this has occurred there has been profound increases in racial polarization. We have seen that about 82% of all of the new white enrollments have gone to the top 468 
most selective universities in the country, while about 70-72% of the Hispanic and African American enrollments have gone to the open access sector, uh, which is made up of um, open access, four-year schools, and the two-year community college sector. So when the bad news of that story is that the graduation rate between these two sectors is huge. It's about 82% on average at the top and 49% at the bottom. And contrary to what people would believe or stereotype, not all of this is explained by readiness. We have data that shows if you take a high-performing minority student scoring above 1,200 on the SAT, that they'll graduate at 73% of the time in the most selective schools, but only 40% of the time in the least selective schools. And a lot of this is really driven by uh, resource allocation, which is there's huge gaps uh, in how much they're able to spend. And few people know, or always that's not really part of the, the news, is that the the private selective institutions receive enormous amounts of public subsidies. So in this framework, we, this is one reason we believe that it ought to be at least part of the public dialogue. Mm -hmm. I talk a lot and think a lot about the, um, the so-called academic achievement gap between students of color and white students and between students living in under-resourced communities and students with more resources. And it really is an opportunity gap the resources that you're talking about and information comfortably reside, I think, in white middle and upper class neighborhoods and schools. Your study really explores the ways that higher education inherits and I think, as you say, mimics racial inequities that exist in K-12 education. And then higher education actually projects those <clears throat> inequities into the marketplace. How is higher education complicit in perpetuating racial divides? Ooh, yeah, that is a uh, uh, tough question there because um, it's not necessarily clear that there's an explicit bigotory actor in all of this. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we're not really sure how all of it is happening in the senses of the differences in the enrollment flows. But clearly, if we take a look, as we have done in our study, at equally qualified students, the bias in the in the pathways occurs in the school system, and work has been done that suggests from the higher education side of the game that the selective institutions aren't really casting their net wide enough, shall we say? And so what's happened mm -hmm. is the uh, highly selective schools go out and they try to recruit to get diversity on their campus. They're actually concerned about these issues, and they've gotten in the habit of going to the same known pools of talent, you know, the, the the good schools where highly talented minority youth will be. These highly selective schools end up competing over a small pool while there are a larger number of highly qualified minorities out in rural areas, uh, high schools where the, school, where the uh, selective schools aren't targeting. So those group of people, back to the information problem, you know, oftentimes they're going to be first-generational college students with not a lot of information about the college-going process. So we notice among the African-American population that, you know, I think it's 9 or 11% stop out with a certificate. And so what they're doing is they're kind of undershooting their own educational performance level. 
And so without having the counseling, which is sort of where the higher education system is perhaps letting these students down, is putting the money into counseling, trying to find them, and then nurture them through the system. Because the resources, once these students are on the campuses, uh, they certainly should be able to uh, perform at least our me our measure is you know looking at comparably scoring students who do do well and you'll notice at every level of, of SAT score that students do about 20 to 30 percentage points better in terms of graduation rate when they go to the selective school regardless of their SAT at least uh, among SAT scores above a thousand above average um, so just not getting those youth into the pipeline is where the higher education system is complicit. It's, it's just the hard part, again, is trying to nail down what part of the process is really making it occur, uh, is really making this happen. There's been, again, there's been some recent work that's really focused on this uh, admissions targeting part of the process. Um, other work uh, is being done you know, with informational delivery at the high school level, trying to just get those students, and this is coming out of a Nicole Hurd's work out of a University of Virginia, where they're trying to go out and do informational delivery to high schools to just help them get out there. Because, you, know, you know, students who don't have parents who went to college don't necessarily have support on the simplest things of filling out uh, FAFSA forms, you know, entry forms, mm -hmm. uh, as well as um, you know, taking taking college tests, which can be expensive, and also there's some neat work that's been done that really sort of describes how costly it is for low-income and minority students to go to a college tour, right? So the cost of rejection is extremely high, so they don't have the same opportunity as more affluent and often white affluent students to go around and do a college tour during the summer and visit 15 colleges and then do 15 applications at three or $400 a whack and have 14 of them rejected, right? That's a lot of money. Right, right. Um, so that's, that's, that's part of the problem um, there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your, your study really does go into – the role that white racial privilege plays in erecting institutional barriers such as those to success for African Americans and Hispanics in this country. Did you structure your research in that way or to, to really kind of explore white racial privilege or were you surprised with with the results? Uh, that, that's a, an interesting question. Traditionally, we've been working on this type of work for about 15 years now, and so we've often looked at it from a class-based perspective, and then sometimes mm -hmm. class mixed with race. Um, and in this study, we decided to come at it from a racial perspective because of the context currently of affirmative action, which is really attempting to ask the question whether or not there are sufficient proxies uh, to pick up uh, to pick up race without using race when we come to mm -hmm. trying to increase diversity on campuses, and so a lot of work is being done to say, well, can we use income uh, to do this or, or or social class to do this? And what we are trying to do here is really demonstrate that while it's true that there are clear 
differences and patterns similar to what we show here in separate and unequal by class, that the patterns are very exist and are very persistent by race also. And I think it's extremely hard to segment those. So that's really how the racial component of this particular project came about. Um, somewhat to show the history of the period of which we have had affirmative action. What's happened? Well, yes, we've gotten a lot of access, but we haven't solved the, pro the, the problem of um, sort of equitable access across all levels of selectivity. And in doing so, as framed by affirmative action, uh, one of the key, I think, significant policy level findings that from this paper is that the, the racial disparities are so embedded in the enrollment flows across the system that it's unclear whether or not legislation, or at least legislation is currently aimed at 10, 20, 30 of the most selective schools in the country is the right approach. It's in a sense a band-aid to a problem that is much larger. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something you, you've touched on, which is that, you know, the federal courts have really been a key driver in how we think about race in the context of educational opportunity. The Supreme Court, you know, recently decided Fisher versus Texas and held that racial diversity is still a compelling interest in higher education, but because of previous cases and, and previous legal precedent, K-12 schools and colleges and universities have been really moving toward a, a conflated notion of race and class and trying to indirectly achieve racial diversity by directly focusing on socioeconomic status, as, as you say, as you pointed out. So what, what role does socioeconomic status play in the white racial privilege framework that you discovered, and, and how should we interact with that in our language and in developing solutions? Um, first of all, you know, pa you know, poverty or low income status has horrendous effects on educational outcomes across all groups. I mean, it sinks all ships um, fairly badly. But the point in some work that actually did, didn't make it into this this report here, or maybe yeah, it might have actually been in here in one place, is that there's still clear racial differences when you begin to try to control for income. And so this is the part that we really want to get, that, that it's almost a fool's errand, in, in a sense, to be trying to separate these two out. Because when we look from a poverty perspective, there's a much higher percentage of African Americans and Hispanics who live in poverty. And so the impacts of socioeconomic status are much more upon um, low income. Where you spoke about um, poor neighborhoods, that there is some interesting work done on what's called racial isolation. And it tends to show that African Americans mostly and Hispanics somewhat tend to stay in poorer neighborhoods when their personal income goes up, while whites will tend to move towards wealthier neighborhoods and they get the benefit of better schools. In doing so, they get the benefit of cohorts of, uh, you know, the students themselves get the benefit of cohorts of students who are going on to college, which is actually a big predictor of college-going behavior. If your friends are going to college, you tend to. If your friends are going to four-year colleges, you tend to. So there's that impact. We see that if you look at educational outcomes among minority groups based on parental education, which is probably the best predictor of educational attainment uh, followed by poverty, is that holding, you know, if you holding um, 
parental education content, you'll notice that there's a huge gap in attainment among minority groups. And so something's happening there in the intergenerational transmission mechanisms. White students are maybe uh, among the top scoring uh, students, there's about a 15 percentage point gap in graduation rates. There's a 10 percentage point gap in getting a BA, all among you know high high scoring students. Uh, when you look at parental education, minorities are about 10 or 15 percentage points lower on overall college graduation, much higher on college dropout, uh, much lower on going on to get BS. So something's happening. Every time we look at these factors and we try to pull them out, we really need to remember that they're interaction effects. That when you look at wealth, um, your home ownership, um, minority behavioral patterns are different than that of white. Something else is going on. When we look at income, something else is going on and it all tends to correlate with race. So the thing that for us, I think, and we'd like to have as part of the discussion, is that um, they shouldn't necessarily be isolated, pulled apart. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. have you gotten pushback or resistance to your your study? Um, we have not gotten any uh, significant uh, pushback from the education community. I think that they're uh, fairly, um, you know, fairly well invested in diversity, and they are constrained by the current legislative actions. But if you look across the post-secondary sector, I think they are trying and have good intent on trying to increase diversity, and so they're doing good in that sense. They like to report, even in the in the um, uh, open access sector. In the general public, I think that there you know are some type of pushback that doesn't understand that we've controlled for college readiness in our study, and they think mm -hmm. that you know selectivity is a perfect match between college readiness and college goingness and the level of selectivity that you end up in, right? So that if you have a 1600, you go to Harvard. If you have a 900, you go to Howard. Well, that's not really the case. Um, and so you can see that type of, of bias that really looking back to the individual and not acknowledging that there is systematic barriers that are kind of embedded in the system. And that's really like, I like the analogy of the separate pathways through post-secondary education. There's a whole bunch of socioeconomic forces at play that have one group going on one pathway. And that for the minorities, that tends to be a pathway towards community colleges and open access four-year schools where they're going, to they're going to drop out of college at a higher rate and when they graduate, they're going to be more likely not to get a BA and stop out with a certificate and an AA. And for the white population, it's a, it's a cumulative effect of family background, of income, of having parents who went to college. They tend to go to the more selective schools where they're graduated at a higher rate. And when they graduate, they get a BA. And when they get a BA, that means they're much more likely to go into graduate school. Now, in one thing in our study that's kind of interesting is that once people achieve the BA and go on to graduate school, we begin to see an equalization of the 
racial gap in educational attainment. And by this I mean if you take minorities who go to a very selective school, they get a graduate degree at the same rate as whites. If you look at and that's the same thing happens in the open access sector. And so it's lower in the open access sector, but white and and minority attainment of of graduate degrees is, is very very similar across both those sectors. I mean, a huge gap there's like 15 percentage point gap between the two sectors. Uh, so if you go to a more selective school, you're more likely to go on to get a graduate degree. Some of that is driven by people in the open access sector stopping out with a certificate or an AA. You need a BA to go on to get a graduate degree, and that has huge impacts on income inequality in the country. Hmm. You've said a lot there that I want to unpack. Just to remind our audience, I'm speaking with Dr. Jeff Stroll, the Director of Research at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce, who is co-author of Separate and Unequal, How Higher Education Reinforces the Intergenerational Reproduction of White Racial Privilege. Jeff, I wonder if we could um, back up a little bit and talk about some of the things that you just described. So I think what what you said is that, you know, some will find surprising that uh, for African-American and Hispanic students who were otherwise completely qualified for admission to the most selective colleges and universities, they were not attending those most selective colleges and universities while underprepared white students are. Um, Is this self-selection? Is it based on some of these unseen socioeconomic forces and systematic barriers? In other words, are are black and Latino students not applying, or are they not receiving information about applying? What's happening there? Yeah, I mean, uh, just, just one thing I want to uh, just be more clear on. I don't think it's really a case of underprepared whites going to the most selective schools. It's just really the mm-hmm. case that not every student going to the most selective schools is a 1600 SAT student. It's just not this perfect ranking between stuff. Uh, uh, between SAT scores and going to selective schools. So most of our analysis is a 1,000 and above, which is above the average on an SAT is 1,000, so we've looked at the top half of performance. So it's in that sector, and clearly it's the case that um, uh, there's many whites and privileged students going to selective schools who have lower SATs than you would believe. So anyways, on that note, um, back to your question about why students aren't going. Well, the premier work in that area, or most recent work in that area, um, is a recent report by Carolyn Hawksby, I think she's with Stanford, and Sarah Turner, uh, where they've done a study, and they've looked and uh, just seen that a lot is driven by minor, high-performing minorities, and they have a very, very rarefied view of high-performing um, aren't going because of information, so they don't know that they could apply. They don't know about merit aid, that they would, they're you know pushed back by the, the, the fear of super high cost. And so there's that, first, the information problem. They don't know about applying. They might not know what the list of schools that would match with their, their readiness level is. They don't know about aid, um, and that that's one... Uh, another issue. And other work that's done in this area, as I mentioned before, is really about just rudimentary level of information. This work uh, being done at the University of Virginia, I call it the 
College Emissary Program. I always forget what it's officially called. But they've been doing a lot of really good work of sending people to high schools with traditionally low post-secondary attainment rates and just go with information about taking the SAT, about filling out forms uh, to help people get into college, and they've done a very good job on increasing post-secondary attainment rates. So there's this combination of, it's why I call it sort of an asymmetric information problem, where the white and affluent students are part of a network where the counselors in the high schools, et cetera, if you go to Sidwell Friends here in D.C., the counselors are going to have the information necessary for you to go to Harvard. Uh, but if you go to a sc- schools in Washington, D.C., in less affluent areas, um, it's n- the counselors are going to have a, about a 500 to 1 ratio, so they can't treat and touch every student. They're not necessarily going to have access to the same types of information, and they're going to naturally tend to have set lower sets of expectations for their students. Sometimes high-performing students don't always stand out of a crowd for a wide variety of reasons, right? It's, always, it's hard to be the uh, geek student among uh, your friends who aren't necessarily um, aiming to go to college. And okay. so the, you know, some of that might translate to the college counselors who historically have just been overwhelmed. I mean, I, I do think that's right. It's about 500 to 1. So... You know, there's a combination of, of admissions targeting by the by the top schools. Their reach isn't far enough. There's information and expectational problems among uh, among the youth. Uh, and so, um, I, I think that plays a lot into it. Mm-hmm. And the the resource disparities that, and you know, for the audience, Sidwell Friends is where the president and first lady send their children. It is a a private institution here in Washington, D.C., and there are huge resource disparities. You know, we sit here in in D.C. where we see um, tremendous disparity in uh, resources between, you know, the most elite private schools and the most elite public schools, um, and then, you know, schools at the other end of the spectrum in um, more under-resourced neighborhoods uh, and communities. And those disparities seem to play out on this this dual track that you describe in your mm-hmm. your report. Um, so, will you talk about you know between the most selective colleges and the two year and open access colleges, um, what the the resource disparities look like? Yes, uh, if we look on average at our open access sector, uh, they spend about $6,000 per year per mm-hmm. student in instructional costs. The average of the top 468 schools is $14,000. So not about two and a half times more money just in instructional costs alone on students. And there's additional costs, but we didn't use those because there's some issues on using those data. If you look at the top 82 schools in the country, they spend $27,000 per year Wow. per student in instructional costs. So the differences there, I mean, that, that's immense. And so there's been work that's been done that suggests that changes in graduation rates are, are 
almost fully driven by differences in resources. So the change in graduation rate and the graduation crisis that we've seen in post-secondary education over the last number of decades is almost fully, the change is almost fully driven by these differences in resources. And those differences in resources outside of the instructional cost, um, you know, come being on a residential campus, having tutors, having study groups, having, you know, mentors. I mean, there's a lot of, I think anecdotal work, I don't know it well enough, that suggests that, you know, when the very selective schools, and I'm looking at the top 82 at this point, I don't know if the top 468 have the resources across the world. They don't let you, they don't let you, they don't let you fail out. I mean, if you look at the very top tier of schools, the graduation rate's above 90%. So, and that includes people with a 1,000 SAT score who are dropping out, especially if they're minority, are dropping out of the open access sector. They're only graduating between 30 and 40%. So they graduate in the 80% in the most selective schools, and they graduate among minorities, uh, you know, in the 30s and 40% in the open access schools. So this, you know, really, you know, a problem. Uh, my, Tony, the uh, lead author on the report, likes to say, you know, it's uh, unequal treatment of equals. And it's purely by SAT score. And I think this is really fundamentally important to understand about this report because you're absolutely right in looking backwards at the socioeconomic factors leading to college, what's happening in resource allocation in the K-12 sector, what's happening in poor versus affluent neighborhoods, and all this material. But what we've done in the report is try to say, okay, we know that's a problem, and it's a it's a longer, deeper problem. It's 12 years versus four. That's one place it's hard to see. It's pretty huge. Right. Um, so we're just saying, so let, let's put that aside, because a lot of people are also doing a lot of work there, and say, let's look at the entry to college, and let's hold mm-hmm. them. Let, let's make a metric of college readiness, and then look at how the racial disparities play out, and still there's 15 to 20 percentage point differences in graduation rates based on where the people go, based on their level of readiness. And, you know, that's something we got to think about because the America that I've grown up in is one of which we've been taught to believe that the education is the great equalizer, right? It's the chance to have a meritocracy, that if you work hard and you make the grades, you would have the opportunity to succeed. Here we're showing that just based on where it is that you're able to go to school for a wide variety of reasons, um, um, directly has an impact on on whether you graduate uh, and then also what level of attainment you have if you do graduate. Right. And and in your study, I think it was, um, you know, the the graduates from the, the most selective schools over the course of their lives Make is it two million dollars more over the course of their lives yes. than a student coming out of the the two year open access colleges? Yeah, that that number just to be clear, that's based on um, the likelihood of either dropping out or getting a sub baccalaureate degree like a certificate. So the difference between being a college dropout, which you're mm-hmm. more than fifty percent likely if you go to the open access sector, leads and, or versus a BA, the income, earn, the difference is $2 million. If you go on to graduate school and get a professional degree, 
the gap can even be much higher. Um, and so the, I mean, there's two key factors. One, likelihood to drop out. You don't make much more than a high school graduate. Secondly, going on to graduate school and beginning a professional or a doctoral degree, master's degree, um, you know, opens up wide wide opportunities, especially into management as well as you know, finance sector, doctors, et cetera, where they make make a lot a lot of money. Your study really focuses on African American and Hispanic students and whites. What about Asian students who are so often saddled with the model minority label? Yeah, this one comes up, and I should have remembered that when you asked uh, about some pushback there. One area that we have had a lot of questions um, is why haven't Asians been included in this report, and some other people should also ask why Native Americans aren't being uh, included in the report. The reason for this is we do not have enough data on test scores to be able to do the same test-based analysis for Asians and for Native Americans. When it comes to the enrollment flows, uh, we've included this data in the appendices of our report. And here you kind of see, I I think that the Asian story is probably a fairly complex one, and I actually personally think from other work I've done, it's intertwined with income at this point because a lot of people forget Asians are not just the Asian tiger mom Chinese, Japanese model, but Asians also include Indians, and there's a lot of you know wealthy Indians who have come to the United States. So I think there's an uh, income effect to play, because if we look at the enrollment flows, where I had said 82% of all the new white enrollment went to the top, mo- top 468 schools, uh, 50% of all the new Asian enrollment go to the top, but 30% go to the bottom of all the new enrollment. We have a middle sector that we haven't looked at because not a lot of, we've looked at it, but not a lot of change happens, so it's not a main part of our report. So just in enrollment flow terms, the Asian population is is bimodal. It's doing two things. Part of them are going to the top, uh, 50%, and 30% are going to the bottom, and I think some of that's driven by income. But we weren't able to control for college readiness in that analysis. So we didn't, that's mm-hmm. the primary reason we didn't include it. It's important to do so, uh, and hopefully there's some new survey data coming out uh, in the next couple of years that would enable that analysis as we've had an increase in the Asian population to then ask how much of it is, you know, are there the same kinds of readiness bias going on in the data, or does the Asian tiger mom you know, very high-achieving student model actually work out, and I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. So you you said earlier, you know, something was happening here, and it, it correlates with race when controlling for other factors. It, it correlates for um, African-American and Hispanic students. Um, and And what we know is that Affirmative action has been in place, and it it isn't enough. It hasn't corrected these social ills that continue to um, to to fester. So, what is happening, and and what do we do to fix it? <laughs> oh boy, it's where I have to be a doctor and do some social surgery here. Um, well, um, first, you know, I think. Uh, 
trying to figure out what it is that we're, you know, trying to solve. Um, you know, first, I, I would think, is getting people into family-sustaining, a job with providing family-sustaining earnings. And so there's such a huge difference in the graduation gap. If we were to try to fix something, that might be a place to start. Uh, and some of that could be in reallocation of resources between sectors, but even that's uh, unclear um, how well that's going to work. So the question is, do you move the money to where the minority students are, or do you move the minority students to where the money is? And that is, I think, a, which would be the more effective solution, I think, is a hard question. We certainly know, and we have to not brush this under the readiness is a huge problem. Right, that some of the graduation crisis is a readiness-driven issue, and this is among low-income whites. This is among low-income minorities. That the K-12 problem, you know, just put going back to full context, you know, contributes. Controlling for readiness, we see that among the low-income population, every single year, 240,000 low-income students who are in the top half of the nation's high schools, do not graduate with a degree from college within eight years of graduating from high school. So here is a, uh, you know, uh, the size of the problem that we ought to be concerned with. Right? It's not a K-12 problem, right? It's a, it's a, they're clearly college-ready. They're top half, 1,000 and above on the SAT. Um, so... We need to figure out, you know, good uh, dropout strategies and good catchment strategies, i.e., to get them in. Some of that uh, will be in getting those students into the more selective schools. And again, I think it's uh, um, information, just like the, this show that you're doing here. If this gets out to minority students who are doing well in school, let them. Hopefully, they'll get the message. Apply. Uh, higher at a higher level than you think, you know, because there is merit scholarships, et cetera. So that's, that's one thing. I think it's really an information that's in counseling that we need to help students, and this is across all race and creed, uh, we need to help students become more literate in terms of education planning. The costs of college are high and Proportion to family income, they're much higher for low-income and minority groups. So planning your way through college and getting done in four years is extremely important, where today the average length of time to getting a bachelor's degree is extended to six years, so that's two additional years of college, which is costly. So trying to deal with, you know, dealing with the cost issue and also trying to deal with the allocation of resources. And what would be nice to do, and there's no natural experiment, is to understand how much benefit we as a society would get if we were able to move, if we were able to jump the um, instructional costs in the open access sector from 6000 to 10000 What would happen? Would we get large gains in graduation rates? And I don't. we don't actually have an ability to, to answer that question, um, or at least answer it uh, very clearly. So those are a few things that, that we might work on, is just helping people, uh, um, you know, raise their sights and uh, to understand educational planning. You know, if they're going to go to college, get through and graduate. Um, because mm -hmm. much of the income disparity, while driven somewhat 
by which college you go to is also driven by just getting a degree and getting a BA versus drop, stopping out with a certificate. So I think those are things that we can work on often, you know, in the counseling um, aspect, uh, counseling arena, because I'm not, really not sure how legislation would deal with this. We, I don't know if we can legislate, um, you know, some type of, you know, entry test to kind of reallocate students to the, you know, appropriately to each school. I just don't, I don't see that happening. So. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jeff Stroll is the Director of Research at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Dr. Stroll is the co-author of the recently released study, Separate and Unequal, How Higher Education Reinforces the Intergenerational Reproduction of White Racial Privilege. Remember that you can access a copy of the report at cew.georgetown.edu. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Stroll. Thank you for having me. And the audience is now officially certified know-it-alls about white racial privilege in higher education. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>